Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawa. Welcome back and uh, welcome you back to the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, today is Sunday, July 31st, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studio in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Later on in our program, uh, we'll bring you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the recently signed maritime agreement uh, in Russia, which takes into account the military threat from the Pentagon and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has closed the 6th African National Congress Policy Conference uh, taking place this weekend in South Africa. We'll have his concluding address. Also, the West African state of Senegal is holding legislative elections this weekend. We'll have details on that as well. And the United Nations is relaxing its arms embargo on the Central African Republic. In the second hour, uh, we look at the significance of the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's visit to several African Union member states just this past, past week. In addition, we look at the impact of the European energy crisis on the African Union region. Also, we review the concluding remarks of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to the ANC National Policy Conference. And finally, we listened to excerpts from the World Health Organization briefing uh, just several days ago on monkeypox and other public health challenges internationally. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, in the East African state of Tanzania uh, with the Sharati Jazz. Let's listen in. Father, 
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program. We just heard the music, uh, classic Pan-African music, from the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania. And that was uh, Sharati Jazz. Yes, and uh, we're here uh, broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on Sunday afternoon, uh, July 31st, uh, 2022. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current uh, political and security situation uh, involving the United States vis-a-vis Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine, and the Russian Federation in particular. According uh, to the top news agency, the United States' course uh, towards dominance in the world ocean and NATO's mounting activity are major security threats to Russia, as follows from the new maritime doctrine approved by Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, earlier today. The new document was posted on the Russian legal information portal. Uh, The major challenges and threats to the national security and sustainable development of the Russian Federation related to the world ocean are the U.S. strategic course towards dominance in the world ocean and its global influence on international processes, including those related uh, to the use of transportation lanes and energy resources of the world's oceans, uh, the document said. The new doctrine also identifies the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's military infrastructure to the Russian borders and the growing number of the military blocks drills in the seas adjacent to Russian territory as major security threats. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, on uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. In South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa says the fight against corruption and work to improve this country's faltering economy have been endorsed by the ruling African National Congress Party in order to improve its declining electoral base. Ramaphosa earlier today addressed the close of the party's National Policy Conference, where it discussed what it might do to address the country's challenges, including high poverty levels and the 35% unemployment rate and rising inflation. The conference has agreed that we need to allocate extraordinary and militant measures to accelerate increasing growth, create employment, and alleviate poverty, Ramaphosa said. And we'll have that address later on in our program. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, in the West African state of Senegal, voters inside the country turned out earlier today for a legislative election a vital test for opposition parties who are trying to minimize the ruling party's influence before the 2024 presidential election amid worries that President Macky Sall may seek a third term. About 7 million voters are eligible to elect 165 deputies in the National Assembly amid a politically tense atmosphere in the West African nation. Violent protests broke out last year after Sall's main opponent, Usman Sonko, was arrested on rape charges and more than a dozen people were killed. Uh, Sonko, who came in third in the 2019 elections, denies the allegation and his supporters have been vocal about their opposition to the president. This year, he and another Saul's major opponents were disqualified as candidates, 
which sparked more widespread anger and protest in which three people died just in June. And uh, finally, the United Nations Security Council voted on Friday to relax the arms embargo against the Central African Republic, a disappointment to its government, which sought a complete lifting of the ban on the sale or transfer of weapons and ammunition. The vote was 10 to 0, with Russia, China, and the Council's three African members that supported the lifting of the embargo abstaining. Sylvie Bipo-Timon, the Central African Republic's foreign minister, told the Council after the vote that the government welcomed the first step towards an arms embargo on armed groups. She also welcomed the end to limits on some categories of weapons for government forces, but she stressed that this embargo is no longer justified. The embargo from 2013 is undeniably ineffective because it no longer provides specific solutions to the grave problems posed by the proliferation of arms by extremists and rebels who have many, many sophisticated weapons themselves, Beipo Timon said. The middle-rich, however impoverished, Central African Republic has faced deadly uh, violence uh, since 2013 uh, when the predominantly Muslim Seleka rebels seized power and forced President Francois Bozizi from office. Mostly Christian militias later fought back, also targeting civilians in the streets. Until thousands have lost their lives in most of the capitals, Muslims have fled uh, to other parts of the country in fear. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. This press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in thousands of newspapers, magazines, journals, and press and research reports as well as blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, also, uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Not only can you have access to today's program, uh, you can also have access to over 1,100 archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners via copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can be copied and pasted on the blogs and websites as well as shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was the Jim Hendrix Experience uh, from uh, their first album, Are You Experience? The tune entitled Love or Confusion. And uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. It's Sunday evening, uh, July 31st, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we want to go uh, to a report uh, analyzing uh, the recent uh, visit uh, to several African states by Russian Federation Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who, of course, uh, made preparatory uh, work uh, towards the upcoming Russia-Africa summit that's scheduled to be held in Ethiopia later on this year. Let's listen in to this report. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is on a four-nation tour for Africa amid diplomatic isolation from the West. French President Emmanuel Macron and the U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, have also set their sights on Africa, where many countries remain neutral on the Ukraine crisis. What's the purpose of Lavrov's trip and how are African nations suffering as a result of the crisis? And how will this competition for influence in Africa impact the situation in Ukraine? To find out, I'm joined today by Hannah Ryder, founder and CEO of Development Reimagined, Mark Sloboda, Moscow-based international affairs and security analyst, and Professor Joe Toker from the American Graduate School in Paris. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qinduo. Welcome to the show. Uh, Professor Toker, you know, Lavrov's African trip includes Egypt, the Republic of Congo, Uganda, Ethiopia, four nations all together. Uh, you know, from the perception or perspective of Western nations or European countries, what is the, the trip about? The trip about is precisely what the ambitions of the French President Macron's trip in Africa in, the, in, in those very minutes, although it's shorter, uh, uh, and maybe we can say at the outset that the ambitions of the French are rather on the defensive, uh, so do the ambitions of the West, generally speaking. I think there's no secret as to the ambitions of, of Minister Lavrov. Uh, he wants to... Uh, expose Russian diplomatic global efforts being highly attentive to the uh, direction of African countries. He wants to combine the uh, uh, meaning of the agreement signed in Istanbul a few days ago, which hopefully uh, will uh, solve or at least ease on the hunger danger and um, limitation perspectives about which African countries are on the front line. And by the same means, of course, mobilize the support, the diplomatic support of African countries to the side of Russia in the war taking place in uh, Ukraine. There were already early signs of rather strong, relatively strong African support to the Russian positions when we take all the continents, even as early as March when the UN voted on, on, on a proposition uh, to condemn Russia, there were 17, I believe, African countries who did not vote such a condemnation. 
So I believe that Mr. Lavrov is trying to deepen those connections, those relations of Moscow with the African continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, in Moscow, so what do you see as the purpose of the trip? So it's about the Ukraine crisis, it's about uh, uh, food shortage, it's about uh, strengthening ties with African nations, friendly nations here? Yeah, uh, let me give you a, a headline from the uh, German state propaganda, I mean state media outlet Deutsche Welle. Amid diplomatic isolation, Lavrov goes on African tour. Now, I'm, I'm sure you see the oxymoronity of, of this language. The West still likes to believe that they are the world. Meanwhile, the Russian foreign uh, minister coming on the heels uh, is touring Africa right on the heels of the Russian president uh, meeting in Iran with the leader of Iran going on a Mideast tour and meeting with a, uh, the leader of Turkey, who is a member of NATO. So uh, certainly part of the, um, the uh, charm offensive, as it is being termed, is reminding the West that they are not the world that you cannot diplomatically isolate Russia from the rest of the world because the rest of the world want nothing to do with the West's war of economic sanctions on Russia. Uh, A second big part of it, of course, is these particular countries are the uh, biggest importers, uh, many of them needing it as a vital lifeline, of Russian grain. Russia is the world's number one biggest exporter of grain to the rest of the world, and in particular, uh, these African countries. So Lavrov is, is not only, uh, you know, shoring up his, the, Russia's diplomatic standing uh, on the international stage, but he is also reassuring customers that Russia is doing everything possible to get their grain to them at the best possible price, all of this, of course, exacerbated by Western sanctions, uh, by uh, the rising price of energy because of Russian sanctions, which has a nexus with the cost of getting the grain, right, uh, the, the cost of fuel to get it to them. Um, and, and also, of course, to, to have a workaround, the many sanctions uh, through the West's weaponization of their control of the global financial system, trying to prevent um, Russia from conducting economic transactions with other countries. Uh, there are still some workarounds there. Even after the EU just announced a backtracking of sanctions, particularly on banks involved with food and fertilizer, and it's no coincidence that this happened right at the same time as the UN and Turkish broker deal uh, to get grain out through the Black Sea. Um, was announced uh, because the EU couldn't very well have their own sanctions be seen as having a greater effect on the grain supply to Africa and the problem with the Kiev regime mining its own ports. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Hannah, tell us, give us a big picture of uh, this relationship between Russia and African nations. You know, uh, how do African nations see Russia? How important is Russia to them? And how do they see the Ukraine crisis, for example? Well, I think, uh, first of all, the Africa-Russia relationship has 
been fairly long-standing and has gone through a number of different stages. Um, and at the moment, what we see is that different African countries have different relationships with Russia. Even those, for example, that Lavrov is visiting at the moment have very different relationships and have very different views. Uh, Egypt, for instance, abstained, uh, sorry, voted in favor of the vote uh, in the UN with regards to uh, telling, telling Russia to stop uh, uh, the war on Ukraine, uh, whereas Uganda uh, was one of the countries that abstained and, and certainly did not support uh, the, the kind of uh, that, that statement. So we have uh, different perspectives, um, different interests as well on the continent. So again, Egypt is a country which does import a lot of grain. That has been overblown in many cases. Many countries do not uh, necessarily actually import much grain from Russia and Ukraine, um, or, but they also, uh, and they rely on other kinds of staples too. Uh, but Egypt is one of the countries that does. So um, that is obviously very important and obviously a key aspect of the discussions in Egypt. Um, but there are other concerns and other issues to raise with Russia uh, that relate to their own relationship and not necessarily just uh, re Russia's relationship with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but l largely, uh, African nations has uh, remained neutral in terms of uh, impo imposing sanctions, for example, on Russia, right? Well, yes. So African countries, vast majority of African countries are members of the uh, non-aligned movement, which has driven their response on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So, for example, um, that view is, is, is a view on non-interference in internal affairs, and therefore sanctions would not be appropriate. And typically, African countries do not engage in sanctions um, with regards to uh, other countries. Nevertheless, um, of course, there are some African countries who do feel that Russia um, has aggrieved and has done, has done something wrong uh, and, and will openly say so. Uh, that is not, you know, that's, perfectly, that's a perfectly fair position to have, but to then move to sanctions is another level. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say the African Union and African Union Commission have been at the centre of the deal that we're talking about that, that Lavrov is coming to Africa just on the heels of. Um, the African Union Commission and African Union uh, Chair, currently President of Senegal, visited Russia um, in June and really made the case for this kind of deal um, before the UN and Turkey got involved. Um, so they paved the way for this. And so again, it's very important to recognize that Africa is a, is a, is a continent where the focus is on solutions, trying to find solutions, and they've reiterated, consistently reiterated, African leaders have reiterated the need to find, uh, to find a solution, to find dialogue, and to avoid war. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, Mark, you know, beyond uh, this Ukraine crisis, beyond this uh, uh, bilateral relationship between Africa and, uh, and Russia, uh, Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, uh, well, uh, speaking in Egypt, also pointed out that, uh, you know, it's, in his words, you know, the aggressiveness of Western sanctions imposed on Russia showed a simple conclusion, quote, it's not about Ukraine, it's about the future of the world order. What does he mean there by world order? Is, you know, that's, a, that's a really a big picture about the global order there. Sure. I, it, it's quite, I think it's quite self-evident. With the West weaponization of their control 
of the global economic and financial system, including uh, cutting Russia off from electronic financial transactions via SWIFT um, and uh, a host of other measures with international banking, uh, threats of secondary sanctions for any country or company that dares do business with Russia outside of explicit Western permission. What other countries see is what can be done against Russia with this weaponization of their control of the existing system can be done to them, right? This immediately questions the credibility, the legitimacy of that current system. And that is exactly what Lavrov is talking about. And when you see Egypt pressing even further their bids to join both the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a dialogue partner, and more important, their bid to join BRICS, which at this point is the nascent framework of an alternative global economic uh, and financial system. That is what it is becoming. You see part of the impetus, the logic behind their actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Toker, um, the speaker of this, the change of the global order, and probably um, people would say this is a, the end or the decline of the unipolar world, let's say the rise of um, the rest or the rise of a multipolar system here? Well, I, I once would rather agree with the overall uh, appreciation uh, of uh, uh, Minister Lavrov uh, naming what is happening on a large scale as indeed um, a situation, a combination of facts and energies and dynamics which have world order in a serious way at stake. I think that this is rather right. I would add, obviously, that the perspective of, of Minister Lavrov is, of course, very different from what uh, Western voices may associate as global world order and the situation right now. We have some illustration of that in earlier moments of our conversation discussion today. I mean, the problems regarding world order right now are not the sanctions of Western powers against Russia. The problem which had destabilized the entire world is actually a military-intentioned well-planned uh, uh, Russian aggression of a sovereign country, Ukraine, uh, on the background of denying this sovereign country uh, its very existence. So this is where it all started. You can keep saying again and again that the West is actually aggressing Russia. You can say that weaponizing Ukraine through Western support is actually aggravating the situation. But we still have, we have to be intellectually uh, honest and to keep this integrity. We're all started, we're all started is indeed the war, the non-declared war coming from Russia towards Ukraine. And I'll add one more element in the, in the specific African context, which we haven't mentioned yet in the conversation, which is the Russian military involvement in Africa. Um, actually, it's a hybrid sort of involvement. Some of it is official. Most of it is through um, a private mercenary groups, such as mainly the Wagner Group, 
which is supporting now um, for sure two African governments and actually is knocking on the door or is being knocked at its doors by other African rulers for both um, um, uh, regime preserve uh, um, ambitions or others. So Russia is present in Africa diplomatic, e- diplomatically, economically, militarily, and, um, and, and she's not the only big power to do that. We have China involved deeply in the continent for a long time. We have Turkey. We have, shown, we have seen Turkey showing up recently. And we have, of course, the West and, and mainly to some extent the French, which have traditional relations, at least at uh, one half of the, of, of the continent, which used to be um, a, um, a combination of French colonies way back. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, there, there are growing ties between African nations and other, uh, say, player, players from other regions, like, you know, traditional relationship and also uh, growing ties with, uh, you know, Turkey, India, for example, Japan, China, etc. Uh, but, uh, you know, when it comes to this Ukraine crisis, uh, you know, uh, Russia and the West, Russia and Ukraine, uh, Hannah, you know, uh, Uganda President uh, Museveni said that during a joint conference uh, that, you know, his country refuses to fight, quote, other people's enemies. So what's your take of, you know, basically at least this country's refusal to side with the West in isolating Russia? You know, some people would say, you know, why they remain neutral? Because people see what happened during the Iraq war, the invasion by the United States without the UN authorization. Possible, a similar uh, situation in Ukraine. And then people would say at that time, uh, you know, what's the sanctions uh, against the U.S.? What's the isolation against the U.S.? Well, I think there are many historic parallels, um, not least, of course, what you've just mentioned, and of course there's also Libya, who was uh, uh, also ex- uh, out of, taken out of the Human Rights, Council, Human Rights um, Council, and also, of course, um, all of those, and th- those issues are still continuing and still having to be dealt with um, by the African continent. Um, I, think the issue, I think there are two things here. I think we should, we should try to untangle them. One is, obviously, there is a, a con- considerable lack of inconsistency from uh, the international community, including expressed at the UN in terms of um, the the response to Russia versus other Security Council members. And I think that is, you know, African countries would like to be consistent as possible. Um, that's, that's our aspiration for international law, to, be, to, be, to have norms that are applied to others, uh, regardless of how much power and influence they have. Um, second of all, I think in, if we're talking about uh, what Museveni said, um, you know, he talks about not having to choose, and I think that's exactly the point. African countries are not in the game of choosing. We're in the game of working with partners, people who, countries who want to be true partners. Um, the uh, African Union uh, Commissioner has talked about uh, has talked about partners who are willing to listen and work with the African continent based on our needs. And so we're open to Russia, we're open to uh, China, we're open to France. Um, many of us even have, depend on our monetary policy with France. Um, so so this, is not, this is not just something in isolation. These are relationships which have been built up over a long period of time. Some of each have their pros and cons. Um, and we have to weigh them up for ourselves in terms of what they're delivering. And that's, I think that's the point that Museveni is trying to put, 
put forward that we have a lot to work on ourselves as, Af as African nation. We still have considerable conflicts on the continent. We have to deal with climate change. We have a lot more growth to deliver, a lot more development. We're still even dealing with the uh, COVID-19 crisis since we don't have enough vaccines. Um, that, those are, have to be our priorities, um, but we will work with the international community, we'll work through the UN um, as the major body for international uh, relations to try to find solutions to the crisis. And those solutions, as I mentioned earlier, can be found within the African continent. We have ideas for solutions, we've dealt with conflict, we've come out of it, um, and we can, we can offer solutions and suggestions for how that can be best done, both to Russia and Ukraine equally. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Mark, I know obviously um, one part of the uh, Lavrov's trip to African nations uh, is to show that this country is not isolated as uh, you know, described by Western uh, countries. Uh, you know, there's reported that the U.S. requested the countries not to have uh, photos with uh, Lavrov uh, in case Russia will use that to show you know, as evidence against this uh, alleged isolation. So in that sense, I mean, Russia has uh, Let's say uh, they, ha they do have friends in African nations over there. And of course, they have the traditional ties, for example, their support of the anti-colonial efforts at the African nations. And also, uh, Russia reaffirmed their support for the UN reform uh, to increase the voice of African nations. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a, a really interesting uh, salient detail of this. Um, uh, during um, uh, Lavrov's uh, recent uh, discussion with the Arab League, he brought up the fact that the West ordered the Arab countries not to participate in photo ops with the Russian foreign minister, and the room erupted in laughter. Um, and uh, there's a great deal of, of talk uh, about sovereignty coming out of our Western partners, all right? It, of, of course, it is a pity that they didn't have a concern for sovereignty of Serbia or Iraq or Libya or Syria or Afghanistan or of Ukraine before the putsch that they backed in 2014, which overthrew the government there. But the Arab countries also have their sovereignty, and they do not like to be ordered not to do photo ops with other countries by the West. Um, and I, I think you see much the same opinion coming out of African countries. They are very well aware of the geopolitical game that has been played by NATO in Ukraine, right on Russia's border, since the government there was overthrown by the openly West-backed putsch in 2014. That, they are well familiar of this from the West's own colonial games, that they are still trying to escape out from other uh, uh, within the African continent. You have to remember that the Pentagon has a division, AFRICOM, for its enormous military presence in Africa, right? Like, like it's a, a part of the world that the U.S. militarily governs. Um, and when you see Russian countries leaping to kick old colonial powers out and in bright in, invite in Russian security contractors, uh, it's, it's part of a goal to escape out from under that still very relevant colonial legacy. Um, it wasn't Russia who started the international use of security contractors, uh, but, you know, once 
the cat is out of the bag, everyone is going to get involved in it. Um, and I, I think you see uh, both in the Middle East, in the Arab world, and in Africa, a refutation of any kind of hegemonic imposition on them. When Zelensky, on June 20th, the leader of the U.S.-backed Kiev regime, um, tried to speak to the African Union, tried to hold a, a Zoom video conference, uh, and the African leaders were heavily pressured by the West to attend, only four of them showed up. I, I think it goes uh, it, uh, quite clearly shows that um, when you are attempting to herd cats uh, from this hubristic position like the West has towards Africa and towards the Middle East, uh, you're not going to have much success. Well, at least we can say it's uh, really uh, up to African nations as sovereign and independent countries to make their choice, right, to, how, to engage whom and in what way to engage. Uh, Professor Toker here, you do see uh, Lavrov's African tour is coinciding uh, with uh, the visit of French President Emmanuel Macron uh, to three African countries and also U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa, uh, Mike Hammer, is also visiting uh, some of the, you know, Egypt and Ethiopia, for example. Uh, do you see you know, Africa has somehow become this uh, new front line in diplomatic competition between Russia and the West? It is not a new front line, uh, and the fact that uh, uh, those two major world leaders, President Macron and Mr. Lavrov, are visiting African continent in the very same time, are just a, it's just a reminder of the fact that Africa is on the mind of, of, of many world powers all the time. Uh, of course, the specific situation right now, which focuses on the Ukraine-Russian war, shifted thing and gives a sense of urgency to many other things, but uh, France in particular and the West in general are on the defensive in Africa these days. Uh, um, I'm reminding you, French forces in Africa uh, and, um, are evacuating, are going back home and will complete the evacuation of the special forces which were sent eight years ago to fight jihadist forces in the Mali, will be all back in France uh, by the end of the summer. What we see on the other side is actually that Russian uh, and Libyan, Turkish troops are entering formally or informally the continent. So there is a shift here. So I believe President Macron wanted to some extent to mark this initiative of his African visit in order to put a relative stop to this defensive uh, uh, situation, which is legitimate, there could have been some uh, internal French political considerations involved in it, which are none of our business right now in this conversation. But right enough, Africa is a front. It's not the major front, but it is a valid front in the overall uh, multipolar uh, uh, geostrategic world. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Hannah, in the, except for calling for this uh, peaceful solution to the Ukraine crisis, you know, basically ceasefire and then you know, solve the problem through dialogue. That's, you know, many countries would hope uh, that would be realized. Uh, but beyond that, for African nations, there are some specific benefits, specific interests. For example, the green import from uh, either Russia or Ukraine, that should be insured because that's about the people's daily lives, about people's uh, you know, stomach being uh, you know, hungry or not. 
and also the fertilizer or energy, you know, uh, whatever the trade between African nations and Russia and uh, Ukraine. Uh, so, so far, with the visit from Lavrov and also, you know, uh, President Macron and the U.S. Special Envoy, do you think that the kind of situation will be improved? Well, um, we have seen, of course, before Lavrov visited the new, new agreement, um, which is obviously very welcome from African nations and in particular countries such as Egypt, um, who do have a lot of imports uh, from Russia and Ukraine. Um, and, of course, fertilizer is, is one of the areas as well. Um, although that said, Africa is a net exporter of fertilizer. So I think one of the key points to mention, and again, to understand the context and the, and the reasoning from African perspectives as to why, why they might be uh, taking differentiated positions on these, on these issues. You know, African countries are dependent, very dependent on the rest of the world and not just not so much Russia and Ukraine, but in, in general, Europe, China, US, dependent on a range of, on a range of different countries, um, yet at the same time fairly marginalized. So what this crisis has really done is, and COVID-19 as well, is really accelerate a push to thinking, you know, how can the African continent try to avoid this kind of dependency, whether it's in terms of food security, in terms of health security, um, and energy security as well. So many African countries, many African nations working together, thinking how do we actually accelerate this push to being a bit more independent, a bit less dependent on the rest of the world, and engage our partners in, in trying to push to that. So. Um, from a bilateral perspective, of course, there are very specific um, outcomes that Egypt will be see have been that ha was seeking um, with Lavrov's, Lavrov's visit, that Cameroon would be seeking from from France, from Macron's visit, um, that Congo would be seeking from Lavrov's visit, and so on. So, all of them have their own bilateral mm. objectives, but overarching that is a kind of push uh, to become to to try to engage. Right. Africa's partners from Russia to France to the well, US. Well, external relations and also really uh, internal more. unity of exactly. African nations. Well, with that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Qingduo. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. Welcome back, and uh, that was an analysis of uh, Russian uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's trip uh, to uh, several African states uh, just this last past week. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. You leave your home for days and days And I know, I said I know, you got another woman somewhere around. Hey, I'm a good woman.
crisis in Europe and uh, how it's impacting uh, the demand uh, for energy uh, from the African continent. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Sunday, July 31st, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's listen to this report on Europe, Africa, and the question of energy. China Global Television Network. Europe is in the grip of an unprecedented energy crisis. Its oil and gas taps are drying up. At the center of it all is the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which the EU accuses Moscow of orchestrating. To punish Russia, the EU quickly imposed a range of crippling economic sanctions on Moscow. A bad idea as it soon emerged. Europe is heavily dependent on Russia for its oil and gas supplies. However, Russia has been slowly turning off the tap. Now caught between a rock and a hard place, Europe has had to look elsewhere to satisfy its energy needs. Africa, which has some of the world's biggest supplies of crude, has emerged as one of the top options. But at what cost for Africa, many are already asking. This week on the program, we explore the extent of the energy crisis in Europe and interrogate whether indeed Africa can fill Europe's huge energy deficit. We also expose the hypocrisy and cynicism in the fight against the climate change this turn of events has brought to the fore. I'm Lindin Tongana. Welcome to Talk Africa. The 
the European Union is courting Nigeria to provide the bloc with liquefied natural gas supplies as it weans itself off from the reliance from Russia. EU officials visited Nigeria earlier this year and officials from the state-run petroleum company, the NNPC, committed to boosting supplies to the Eurozone. CGTN's Deji Badumosi has more. Nigeria already exports liquefied natural gas to Europe. Last year alone, it exported 12.63 billion cubic meters of gas to Europe through the Nigeria Liquefied Natural Gas, NLNG. Currently, uh, the uh, six trains of Nigeria LNG produces about 22 metric tons of LNG per annum and about 5 million tons of LPG uh, per annum. Uh, at certain times, you know, due to gas shortage, uh, there may be shortfall in this name plate of uh, uh, gas uh, production. Europe accounts for 40% of Nigeria's gas exports, but the bloc says it wants more as a result of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. In April, a European delegation met with authorities in Nigeria to extract a commitment on increased gas supply, and the government gave the commitment. Nigeria will be very willing and we are very well positioned to be a reliable partner reliable supplier of energy to Europe. Authorities are looking beyond the NLNG to drive its gas supply to Europe. The country is currently working with other African countries to construct gas pipelines from Nigeria to Europe. Two of such projects are the Trans-Saharan Gas Pipeline that will transport natural gas from Nigeria's Niger Delta region to Europe via Algeria and the Nigeria-Morocco Gas Pipeline which will link up with the West African gas pipeline and take natural gas to Europe through Morocco. So if both pipelines are completed, then you can be sure that our gas here will be destined for Europe. But both projects are capital intensive and long term, and even the NLNG is still working on improving its capacity with additional trains. There's also the problem of inadequate LPG for the domestic market, where prices have since hit the roof. It's a complex situation with no easy fix. One thing though is clear. Nigeria has an abundance of natural gas reserves, up to 260 trillion cubic feet, that could potentially be increased to 600 trillion cubic feet. Mining enough of the gas for revenue has been the big challenge. DG Badimasi, CGTN, Lagos, Nigeria. Well, let's now bring in our panel. Joining us from London via Zoom is Dr. Elif Selin Chavik, an energy consultant based in London and author of Renaissance of Smart Energy. In Johannesburg, also via Zoom, we're joined by Langa Madongo, economist and principal consultant at Summit Africa. And from Lagos, Mr. Balazaka, a petroleum engineer and an oil and gas analyst. Thank you to all three of you for joining us for today's program. A very warm welcome to you. I want to start with Dr. Chavik in London. Of course, Europe's energy shortfall is being described as a crisis, a nightmare, an energy system pushed to the limits. And it certainly can't be helping that Europe is currently experiencing its worst heat wave ever. Dr. Chavik, tell us from your experience just what the magnitude is of this energy crisis. It's a falling train of energy dominoes, one in which each child is worth many bi billions of euros. 
especially for this winter. Uh, in Europe, when the dust settles, uh, the total bill for rescuing the European energy market this winter will easily top um, more than $200 billion. It is rough estimate of uh, International Energy Agency. So here in London, uh, let's look at the households. The UK is paradigmatic of the problem. Uh, last February, London announced a multi-million, multi-billion pounds bailout to cushion the impact of 54% increase in the country's retail energy cap. So currently, the near uh, 70% increase is set to be announced in early August next month. So this is the figures of Government Energy Regulation Institute of GEM. On the other hand, Germany also. Germany has similar situation in Europe. It is not difficult to predict that next winter will be very, very expensive in Europe. Mm, absolutely. And in fact, one journalist from the UK's Guardian newspaper shared a rather grim forecast for Europe's winter, saying it's going to be a long, cold, calamity-filled winter of power shortages and turmoil. Uh, Langa Madonko, I want to come to you for a moment now. Uh, we know that Europe was quick to respond to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, giving a lot of support to Ukraine and, of course, uh, imposing sanctions. Now, considering Russia's retaliation when it comes to the matter of oil and gas, do you think Europe's response was perhaps a little short-sighted? The impact, or rather the magnitude of the dependence on Russia um, by Europe was probably understated in terms of um, what was the perceived impact of the sanctions on, on Europe. I think uh, we've immediately seen, um, as Edina has spoken to, how the, the gas prices have immediately shot up. We've seen the energy crisis that has already started uh, to be felt. Uh, and I also think we've also started to see how we've needed to move away in Europe anyway from uh, using just uh, renewables as a solution for providing energy to moving to coal. Uh, I think out of South Africa, for example, 15% uh, of all the exports of coal since uh, the, the war began have been to Europe towards um, reigniting some of the, uh, the fire stations, uh, the coal powered stations there. And I think some of the measures that have been taken, uh, whilst right in terms of trying to uh, bring an end to a war, were not fully considered in terms of what their impact would be on the energy situation. And I think we're still yet to see more issues unveiling because we know the extent to which Ukraine and Russia are important also as wheat producers into the region. And we want to, we're still yet to see how that plays out uh, for the food situation within the European bloc. And so I want to bring in uh, Dr. Balazaka now uh, in Lagos. Uh, Mr. Zaka, why is Africa an option? Let's talk about the kind of oil and gas reserves that this continent is sitting on and the extent to which it could perhaps fill that energy gap in Europe. Well, uh, one will expect uh, naturally that uh, based on what is happening uh, between Russia and uh, Ukraine and the, and the sanctions and, and the retaliation of, of, of Russia, the, the, the only continent to turn to is, is, is the continent of Africa. And uh, fortunately, Africa is endowed with so much uh, crude oil and, and gas uh, as, as we speak. And when you look at it globally, uh, we are talking about energy security here. Uh, and and, and you, the first thing you require is general security in, in, in any country or nation or continent. 
and after that the next thing you require is energy because once you have the energy then i mean uh, citizens can embark on activities that will make them to create aggreg aggregate mobility of, of 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 transactions and it is from there that they will be able to comply with their civic responsibilities of paying taxes and levies uh, to generate revenues for their government and to grow the gross domestic products of their respective countries. So it's, I think uh, it, 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 it's the right time, though it's happening due to hostilities and, and sanctions. And uh, what we hope and expect is that uh, I mean, there will be a mutually win-win and positive relationship for both partners. Uh, that's the countries uh, turning towards Africa and, and the continent of Africa also. And we will come back to that question of whether or not this is a win-win arrangement for the two continents. But I want to just take a closer look at Africa's capacity to actually deliver on this uh, notion of filling that energy gap in Europe. Um, Dr. Tovic, let me come back to you. Africa does have the oil and gas reserves, but what about the infrastructure, the pipelines, the export terminals to make this a reality? Africa's biggest gas energy project, Nigeria Morocco Gas Pipeline, uh, it is four 4,000 kilometer line, and it is like a crescent uh, shaped line. We can all we can call this pipeline that crescent shape pipeline crescent. And I always call this uh, pipeline golden crescent because it is starting from Nigeria, Ghana, Guinea, Senegal, Mauritania, and ended up Morocco, Africa's European border country. So it uh, it, it includes 11 uh, African countries. So a uh, couple of weeks ago, a uh, Nigerian president has called Europe to help fund $25 billion for this important uh, historical gas pipeline by highlighting its potential to solve Europe's energy crisis. So it is really, really important in terms of relationship between Africa and Europe. Mm. And Dr. Madonko, I want to come to you on this same topic about Africa's realistic capacity to really help Europe at this time. I mean, we know that countries like Italy, for instance, are shopping around uh, for gas and oil in Angola, in the Republic of Congo. Can these kinds of countries deliver on this need that Europe currently has? Yeah, I think, in my view, from a capacity perspective to deliver on the commodities, Africa definitely has the capacity. We definitely have the the, uh, the raw resources in order for us to meet that need. But as you have rightly said, I think our greatest impediment will be infrastructure. I think uh, Dr. Lin, when speaking to it, also alludes to the fact that the gas line that allows us to evacuate, um, uh, the oil line that allows us to evacuate oil from Nigeria into Europe, still needs to be constructed and needs to go a long way. We've got gas reserves in, in Mozambique, for example. We don't have the adequate infrastructure to evacuate those and lead them into, uh, into Europe. We speak about coal from South Africa, and South Africa in of itself is having troubles with the ports. So I think the greatest impediment and probably the greatest opportunity for gain for Africa is in the enablement of that infrastructure. Uh, I think the quicker we can take advantage, the greater we can benefit from the current crisis. Mm. And yes, we'll need some partnership coming out of Europe, um, coming out of the developed uh, economies to make sure that there's a, a realistic um, benefit for Africa. And I think the greatest economic uh, advantage that we have right now is that we possibly could for the first time be negotiating 
on our terms because it's currently not realistically a crisis that's being experienced in Africa, mm. but Africa has the solution to that crisis. And that brings us to, to what Mr. Zaka raised earlier, the potential for this to be a win-win arrangement for both Europe and Africa. Uh, Mr. Zaka, we know that Africa stands to gain in terms of jobs, in terms of the millions of revenues, uh, millions in revenues rather, that can be made at a time when we still are recovering from the pandemic. So do you think that, this, that these deals could be very positive for Africa? Well, uh, what's happening at the end of the day will be positive for, for the continent of Africa. But I think uh, it will not be immodest if I say uh, as far as energy infrastructures are concerned, the, the continent of Africa was a, a somehow docile. Uh, I, I can give a specific example ab ab about Nigeria. Uh, more than probably three or four decades uh, ago, uh, the Nigerian leaders then uh, conceived uh, the idea of what we then call the Trans-Saharan Gas Pipeline. And the, the intention then was to construct uh, gas pipelines uh, from, from Nigeria through uh, North Africa, through the Mediterranean Sea uh, into Europe. Uh, I'm just, ju just trying to imagine what will have happened now if that, those structures or infrastructures were put in place. Mm -hmm. uh, at a point, okay, to take care of the uh, West African sub-region, uh, they came up with what we call the West African Gas Pipeline uh, Project, which, which has seen reasonable progress. So if the Trans-Saharan Gas Pipeline uh, Project and initiative had crystallized, uh, something tells me that Europe will just uh, switch towards, towards, towards uh, such uh, uh, infrastructures. Mm -hmm. But it's a wake-up call for, for, for Africa too. We, we mustn't wait, or Africa mustn't wait until opportunities come to, 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 to the gates like this. Mm -hmm. But the key thing is to always be futuristic in, in, in their thinking, to also be generational in their thinking, especially when it comes to to energy and energy solutions. Absolutely. So some missed opportunities in the past, but new opportunities today. Uh, Mr. Madongo, I want to come back to you in Johannesburg. What are these specific kinds of deals African oil and coal exporters should be signing uh, to guarantee maximum returns? I, I agree with Mr. Zaka that the greatest dividend that we can probably realize from this is co-investment into the infrastructure. I think we shouldn't look at it uh, only exclusively from the perspective of what's the best price you can get for the coal. Um, and as Dr. Leaf has said, should, how do we structure partnerships to finally produce the pipeline from Nigeria all the way to Morocco? And that pipeline will not only have a benefit for Europe, but will also have a benefit for the West Africa sub-region. Uh, how are we um, mobilizing expertise in order to enhance the quality of the ports and the roads so that we can bring those resources to the terminal so that we can further benefit from the export potential that exists. But I think we also need to be looking at this uh, even further. How do we then, uh, in the process, also look to invest in the infrastructure for the local economies? Uh, is the dividend that we're going to realize from what uh, some already um, calling a coincidental commodity boom going to be invested in making sure that the energy situation in Africa itself, which we know in many instances has lagged behind, is also addressed. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you 
so much. We'll leave it there just for the moment. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about this and find out whether Africa stands to gain from signing new energy deals with Europe. And is Europe's own climate commitment taking a back seat with economic growth and energy security being threatened? Do stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with me in London is Dr. Elif Selin Chavik, an energy consultant and author of Renaissance of Smart Energy. In Johannesburg, Langa Madongo, economist and principal consultant at Summit Africa. And from Lagos, Mr. Balazaka, a petroleum engineer and an oil and gas analyst. Well, I think now it's time that we talk about the elephant in the room, which some have labeled as Europe's own hypocrisy. We know full well that Europe doesn't want to fund oil and gas projects in Africa and has been actively discouraging the use of gas and other fossil fuels around the world in pursuit of global climate goals. And of course, now, though, of course, uh, Europe is looking to import that gas. I want to start with you, Langa Madonko. Um, interestingly, the news publication Foreign Policy has labeled Europe's, uh, Europe's stance as gas for me, but not for thee. Is it fair then that Africa is supposed to leapfrog the use of its own oil and gas and coal that it would rather perhaps exploit for the benefit of its own people? In my view, it's, it's slightly unfair because I think our infrastructure currently is built for the exploitation of those resources. Um, and because we've got such um, huge disparities in terms of the infrastructure development here and the infrastructure development in Europe, again, I go back to the concept of a just transition. It can't be that we need to leapfrog, we need to transition into it. We are all uh, pro-moving uh, towards green solutions, but I think this further heightens the need for a just transition. It can't be that um, we are now saying from an African perspective, all the new solutions need to be um, just on the basis of solar and wind. We need to make sure that it's a measured and managed approach towards achieving those goals. For us to be benchmarking the entire uh, world in terms of when we need to achieve this on the same footing, when the level of development of infrastructure for those solutions on the African continent, for example, is not at the same footing as where Europe has been, would be unjust. I think we need to be making sure that in our investment towards uh, a green economy, we are not neglecting investment into other spaces. Because I think one of the biggest challenges that we currently face is that if you look at infrastructure investment on the African continent and what is, is being attracted, we are seeing a large chunk of that infrastructure being invested into, um, into energy. While we still have glaring shortages in terms of healthcare infrastructure, education infrastructure, road, rail, port infrastructure, and even airports. And I think we need to always be 
allowing Africa to be a balanced developing community. We need to not only focus on the energy solutions of the future, but make sure that we're enabling the whole environment. We are starting to see uh, higher levels of unemployment creeping up across the continent. And we also need to be dealing with that in terms of creating other pockets of the economy, not just in the energy space. Well, let me share with you what uh, Nigeria's president, Muhammadu Buhari, has had to say on the matter. He says, we need long-term partnerships, not inconsistency and contradiction on green energy policy uh, from the UK and the European Union. He further goes on to say, it does not help their energy security. It does not help Nigeria's economy and it does not help the environment. Mr. Balazaka, coming to you, what does your president mean by these remarks? Uh, with specific reference to Nigeria. I want to call uh, Africa uh, an emerging continent. Uh, uh, but, but, but what was happening was a case of the developed nations and uh, continent moving probably at a faster rate you know, com- or speed compared to, to the continent of Africa. Because we were do- when, when other, other continents were talking about... Uh, going green when they were talking about renewables we knew that uh, even the fossil fuel we we have within the continent of africa has not been put to use you know we knew that we were grappling with with basic electricity supplies you know we require diesel we require what we call petrol kerosene and the rest and the people are still cutting firewoods here to cook we, we, we were not having liquefied petroleum gas for, for cooking. So when, when that philosophy or that concept or drive came to go green, uh, within the continent of Africa, we, we knew we, we, we were largely behind. But because it was a global vision, I mean, the continent of Africa and Nigeria wanted to key in. But what has just happened is a clear indication that, I mean, when, when there is a sudden halt in, 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 in any system, people are likely to, to adjust. Because what happened uh, from the Russian-Ukraine crisis just led to a, a kind of halt and a disequilibrium in, in, in energy supplies, energy vision. So to that extent, uh, it, it seems now Africa and, and Nigeria in particular is saying, oh, so, so our, the coal deposits we have, or we have always had, will be important. Oh, the, the, the crude oil we have is important. Even the natural gas that is a cleaner fossil fuel, which we thought we needed to move away from, is, is suddenly important. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, uh, then this time around, probably there is a need to be very honest as, as members of global community. There is a need for us to have a partnership that, that will lead to a win-win situation. Mm-hmm. Because we now want what will be good for for other parts of, of the world to also be good for the continent of Africa and also to be good for Nigeria. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Chavik, coming back to you, as Europe is looking to fill this energy gap and turning to resources such as oil and gas, it is almost inevitable that we will see a rise in emissions. Is Europe suggesting anything in the line of mitigating uh, this uh, negative impact on the environment? As it is highlighted in uh, uh, last year during you know, COP26 in Glasgow, uh, there are two things important, uh, certainty and leadership. Uh, those two things can attract green investment 
and achieve uh, continental like Africa, for example, achieve Africa's social economic development goals and also Europe's social economic development goals as well. Uh, so I think uh, Africa can also partner uh, with competitive countries that also willing gas producers. Uh, so, how much uh, Africa uh, show really, really boldly partnership in terms of green investment with Europe? That much uh, the continent can uh, get the more fair basis in terms of reaching net zero 2050 targets. Thank you so much, and uh, Mr. Zaka, I want to come back to you for a moment on this matter of the environment. Uh, one can't easily forget the massive environmental destruction that Shell caused in the Ogoni land region in the early 90s and the impact that that is still having on the environment today. Um, we've seen the scramble for Africa. We might be looking at a scramble for Africa's oil. How important is it that Africa insists on guarantees to protect the local environment at all costs? It's very, very important that the environment is, is, is secured because everything about, about survival is, is, is the ecosystem. And based on that, we just have to make sure the environment is secured. Then also, I think the model that many African countries or the continent of Africa has been using was probably the, the wrong model. But I, I, I stand to probably be, be corrected. I think something tells me that some, some, some of our political leaders within the continent of Africa were comfortable with, with uh, the, the model of extracting uh, our raw materials, whether, whether, whether solid uh, uh, minerals or uh, oil and gas, and, and they were comfortable with, with, with Africa and Africans uh, being an imp I mean, being important continent and, and countries. Because when you look at it very well, I mean, whether you talk about the areas of solid minerals or crude oil and gas, at a point we, we, there were just no infrastructures, and uh, that docility can 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 be put at the doorsteps of of, of our economic uh, and and political leaders. At some point, something tells me that they were comfortable. Uh, to be relying on imports, which was not uh, in the interest of Nigeria and, and the continent of Africa. Because if they were to care for the environment and we internally domesticate things here, then apart from exploiting the mineral resources, we were supposed to take care of the, 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 the environment by making sure if there is any form of biodegradation, somehow, somewhere, we must take steps to bioremediate those concerns mm. but i think somehow somewhere probably the models that they were using were the wrong models they were probably using the models of being comfortable with our resources being exploited and we behaving or being comfortable with more of importation but i think with what is happening now i think there will be a, probably a balanced discussion on on the table and that's why I, I was probably talking and hoping that we are likely to see probably a win-win situation this time around. Well, we certainly hope so. Thank you so much. That is all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts in London, Dr. Elif Selin-Chavik, energy consultant and author of Renaissance of Smart Energy. 
In Johannesburg, Langa Madongo, economist and principal consultant at Summit Africa. And in Lagos, Bala Zaka, petroleum engineer and an oil and gas analyst. Now remember, you can be part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. Do join us again next week for more from Talk Africa. From me, Lindium Tongana, and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, goodbye. Welcome back. And that was an analysis of uh, the European energy, energy crisis and uh, the turning of uh, the UK and the European Union towards Africa, ostensibly to fill uh, the energy gap, which is looming uh, in uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe uh, as a result of the sanctions and war, uh, proxy war against the Russian Federation. Right now, we want to go to South Africa for the concluding remarks of the African National Congress, uh, sixth national conference, and uh, this is President of the African National Congress and State President Cyril Ramaphosa. All right, now let's go back to Nazareth, where ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa is giving his closing address. Mabuza, Treasurer General Paul Mashatile. Our former president, Thabo Mbeki and Kalema Mutlante, members of the National Executive Committee, the leadership of the ANC Women's League, the Youth League, the Veterans League, and leadership of the Alliance and broader democratic movement components, our stalwarts and veterans and delegates and all comrades. We've now come to the end of our sixth national policy conference. And true to the democratic traditions of our movement, this conference in large measure has been characterized by open and robust debate. Even where delegates had differences, there's always been a firm commitment to engage with each other and to find common positions. The engagements were done and underpinned by respect, a good measure of decorum, and in some cases some humor. Even where voices were raised, it was always with a view to finding each other and reaching agreement. While we must continue to debate how we can best address the challenges our country faces, we are all agreed on the goals that we must pursue. We are all agreed that we must unite all South Africans to achieve the complete emancipation of all our people. We have noted that across all the commissions, there was a shared consensus that both the ANC and the government must respond adequately, urgently, and assertively to the challenges that are 
people are facing on a daily basis. The challenges include the burden of unemployment, poverty, crime, gender-based violence and femicide, corruption, social cohesion, racism, the energy crisis, and the rising cost of living. These are but some of the challenges that are urgent that our nation faces. Delegates recognize that these many challenges will not be resolved unless we intensify the genuine renewal of the African National Congress and the building of a capable, ethical, and developmental state. This means that we need to clearly define and articulate the character of the African National Congress as a non-racial, non-sexist, and democratic liberation movement that must continue to mobilize, to organize, and lead the motive forces and society in pursuit of the National Democratic Revolution. The renewal of the African National Congress therefore requires that we remain rooted as a movement amongst the people and we must demonstrate a willingness to serve and make sacrifices and must also be willing to acknowledge and address our weaknesses. Since our 54th National Conference, we have made important progress in implementing our resolutions on renewal and rebuilding, but we have recognized that at this policy conference that we need to act with greater urgency to implement the other resolutions as well, much as we have implemented a number. We have agreed here that the overarching framework for renewal needs to include firstly the renewal of the ANC's values and organizational culture and ethics. Secondly, dealing decisively with corruption and unacceptable conduct. Thirdly, engaging and pursuing the aspirations of the people of South Africa. Fourthly, taking responsibility to use the resources of the state for the people's benefit as required by the Constitution, economically, efficiently, and equitably. This task belongs to every member. It also belongs to every leader, every public representative, and every structure of the African National Congress. All the elements of our renewal framework need to be integrated into every aspect of our work in the ANC, in society, as well as in government. Policy Conference agreed that ANC branches should play a more active role in the renewal process and be well rooted amongst our people.
This sixth policy conference has affirmed our fundamental position that the people must and shall share in the country's wealth. This policy conference has agreed that we need to undertake extraordinary and urgent measures to accelerate inclusive growth, create employment, and alleviate poverty. We have also noted with great concern the impact of the rising cost of living on South African families and have made a number of recommendations specifically on rising fuel and food prices. We have called on government to act urgently to support consumers and businesses at this very difficult time. But these measures will not be successful unless they are embraced by all sections of society and unless all sections of society are involved in forming and undertaking these measures. We are committed to build an inclusive and lasting social compact. While different constituencies that must help to build the social compact may pursue different interests, and may hold different views, we share a common national interest in unity, stability, growth, employment, and prosperity for all. We have discussed the respective and complementary roles that the public, as well as the private sectors, should play in developing our economy. We have called for the state to be strengthened for our state-owned enterprises to be stabilized, restructured and effectively capacitated to drive inclusive economic growth and social development. We have recognized the vital role of the, public, the private sector, particularly small business and the informal sector, including cooperatives, We've recognized that the private sector should continue to play a role in creating employment and other livelihood opportunities. And so should the public sector as well. And we have proposed a range of measures to unlock the huge potential of businesses of all sizes to emerge, to grow, and to thrive. We have recognized that our economic progress requires a secure supply of affordable and sustainable energy. Conference endorsed the actions recently announced by government to improve the performance of ESCOM's existing power stations and to add new generation capacity to the grid as quickly as possible. It has affirmed the need for a diverse mix of energy sources and a just transition to a low-carbon economy that ensures our energy security, protects jobs and livelihoods, and does not compromise our industrial development. Expanded infrastructure investment should be accelerated to play a critical role in providing basic services to urban and rural communities 
and also improving South Africa's overall economic performance. We must use available means, including the new expropriation bill, to accelerate land redistribution. As the delegates to this policy conference, we are determined to achieve gender equality in all areas of life, starting within the ranks of our own movement, in every structure and in every program and in everything that we do as the African National Congress, there must be parity. We have agreed that this is everybody's responsibility and it's not only the responsibility of women. As part of this, the empowerment of women economically, politically, socially and culturally must be one of our foremost priorities. Among other things, conference has urged the application of an overarching equality legislation and using procurement more effectively to empower women economically. And this is all set out in the reports that are going to be circulated from the various commissions. We are all agreed that all South Africans have a right to live in peace and security and that no one should live in fear of crime, violence or abuse. We are committed to work together to end all forms of violence committed by men against women and children. All delegates to this policy conference are agreed that the development and empowerment of our youth is vital to the future of our nation. We have agreed on the need to intensify our efforts to provide young people with quality education and relevant skills to expand the various programs that bridge the gap between learning and earning and to use all available policy instruments to encourage businesses to hire more young people. We are all agreed that every person in this country must, without exception, have access to quality education, decent health care, housing, water, sanitation, electricity, and safe as well as reliable transport. This means that we need to fundamentally overhaul local government and ensure that it is properly resourced, effectively managed, and it should be led by honest, capable, and well-qualified and committed people. The conference noted again the historical anomaly of the private ownership of the South African Reserve Bank and reaffirmed the 54th National Conference resolution that the bank should be fully owned by the people of South Africa. <laughs> Delegates urged the ANC government to find mechanisms to restructure the ownership 
of the bank in a manner and at a pace that takes account of the likely cost implications for the fiscus. Delegates also urge that the process for establishing a state bank should be accelerated. All the measures proposed to grow and transform the economy rely on a fiscal policy that ensures that our national debt is contained within sustainable limits and that spending is reprioritized away from consumption towards investment. In this way, we can align our fiscal policy with our industrial policy, which should focus on rebuilding and broadening our industrial base. We have agreed to propose that the procurement system should by law be more open, more transparent, building on the initiatives for greater public access to all tender information. This conference has demonstrated more clearly that more than ever before, our common commitment to read our organization of factionalism, patronage and corruption and to renew and to rebuild our organization is quite an urgent mission. It has made the, an equivocal statement that we must fulfill the promise that we have made to our people to place their interests and their well-being first amongst all things that we do. We have reaffirmed the resolutions of the 54th Conference on Corruption and State Capture. The overwhelming view of the policy conference is for the retention of the step-aside provisions to, to enhance the integrity of the movement and its leadership. Conference also noted that there are strong concerns on the perceived lack of consistency in the application and implementation of this policy. Conference agreed that these must receive urgent attention so that the application of the guidelines is impartial, is fair, and is consistent. Delegates have affirmed the ANC approach to the report of the State Capture Commission and have urged that the findings and recommendations of the report form the basis of a society-wide effort to tackle corruption in all its forms. Over the last three days, through intensive and thorough discussion, we have developed a series of policy proposals on how to achieve our revolutionary objectives. Some existing policies have been affirmed. Some have been refined, and some have also been changed. 
These policy proposals will now go to the structures of our movement for further debate before being placed before the 55th National Conference for Consideration and Adoption in December. Let us use the next few months to build our branches through political discussions. As we have done over decades, whether in our mass formations, as we have done also in exile, in prison, let us turn every branch meeting into an umkhabulo session. Let us broaden discussion of all these policy positions and as it was said earlier by Comrade Jeff Hadebe, the reports are going to be consolidated into a publication and all that will be sent to all our branches for discussion. And let us use these meetings, comrades, to deepen the political consciousness of the hundreds of thousands of ANC members so that they may lead the fundamental renewal of our movement. Because we do believe that as we discuss all these proposals, through that we will be deepening and broadening the renewal process. This policy conference does give us hope for the future of our movement. It has sent a clear signal to our members, our supporters, and indeed to the people of this country whatever, that whatever our challenges, whatever our shortcomings, the ANC is alive. It has sent a clear signal that the ANC is committed to consolidate and deepen the freedom for which so many sacrificed their lives. This conference has made plain that the ANC will continue to direct its attention and its significant capabilities towards serving the people of South Africa, particularly the poor, the working class, and the vulnerable. This policy conference gives us encouragement that yes, the renewal of the African National Congress is unstoppable. And that we have both the means as well as the commitment to rebuild and to revitalize our movement. Our sincere thanks, comrades, must go to all those who were involved in ensuring the success of this sixth national policy conference, particularly our comrades in the SGO, the staff of the African National Congress, who have borne the brunt of the ANC's financial challenges and difficulties, but who have had time, time and again, have also demonstrated their commitment to the cause of their movement.
and we must thank them sincerely. This conference has determined in virtually all the commissions that the resolution of the challenges, financial challenges that the staff of the African National Congress is facing right now must be addressed as a matter of priority. I wish to thank all the comrades who have been involved in the preparation of the documents, as led also by Comrade Jeff and the others, who worked tirelessly to make sure that indeed we do have this conference and that the discussions took place as they did. I wish to thank all of you delegates to this conference, the representatives of our alliance partners and our other formations. This sixth conference has effectively prepared the path towards the 55th National Conference of the ANC. Let us now go out to our branches, to our communities, and to all social formations to report on these deliberations and to work together to decide the direction of our movement and of our country. As they say, the African National Congress is the way to go. And indeed, this is the way to go. So comrades, I wish all of you as delegates and all others who've been here safe travel as you go home to your various places until we meet again in December. The ANC lives, the ANC leads, and our struggle continues. Thank you very much. Amanda. Amanda, Amanda, Kaibamba Kangling Minji, hold it, hold it, Limbobo, hold on a bit. Welcome back, and uh, that was um, the concluding remarks uh, to the Appen National Congress 6 uh, National Policy Conference. Uh, which just ended uh, in the Republic of South Africa. And uh, we brought you uh, that statement uh, from President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who is state president and president of the ruling uh, African National Congress. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast.
voice of Irma Thomas, uh, Rule of My Heart, uh, that pure, moving, emotional, rhythmic, melodic, uh, southern soul sound of Irma Thomas. And, uh, of course, uh, we have been following uh, the public health crisis uh, around the globe uh, since the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic some two and a half years ago. And also uh, the recent uh, outbreak of monkeypox, uh, which, uh, according uh, to the epidemiological history of the uh, ailment, have been largely confined to uh, West and Central Africa. There's been an outbreak uh, of monkeypox in Western countries, even inside the United States. Uh, the World Health Organization, uh, which is based in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, did uh, hold a briefing uh, several days ago in Geneva, Switzerland, to discuss uh, the phenomena of uh, monkeypox outbreaks, as well as other uh, public health concerns uh, around the world. Although many uh, governments uh, have downplayed the continuation of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the monkeypox uh, phenomena, uh, the World Health Organization has continued to monitor and provide data on these. Uh, Hello to everyone from Geneva, headquarters of the World Health Organization. My name is Tariq, and I welcome you to the regular WHO press briefing on COVID-19, monkeypox, uh, and other global health uh, issues. Today, uh, with us, uh, uh, we have a number of uh, guests here in the room, and uh, WHO officials online. I will start by presenting uh, our speakers in the room. We have uh, Dr. Tedros, WHO Director General, Dr. Mike Ryan, who is Executive Director of WHO Health Emergency Program, Dr. Uh, Sumya Swaminathan, our Chief Scientist, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove is a Technical Lead for COVID-19, uh, Dr. Rosamund Lewis is a Technical Lead uh, for uh, Monkeypox, uh, uh, Dr. Rogerio uh, Dr. Rogerio Gaspar is Director for Regulation and Prequalification. We also have uh, Mr. Tim Nguyen, who is a Unit Head for High Impact Events. Uh, we also have a number of uh, WHO officials online, uh, and I will introduce them after the opening remarks. So uh, just to remind you one more time that we have uh, simultaneous uh, interpretation in six UN languages, as well as Hindi and Portuguese, journalists who are online, uh, please um, click the icon, raise hand to be uh, to be put uh, in the queue for asking questions when we come to that. Uh, with this, I give the floor to uh, Dr. Tedros for his opening remarks. Dr. Tedros. Thank you, thank you, Tariq. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. As you know. On Saturday, I declared the public health emergency of international concern over the global monkeypox outbreak. More than 18,000 cases of monkeypox have now been reported on to WHO from 78 countries, with more than 70% of cases reported from the European region and 25% from the region of the Americas. So far, Five deaths have been reported, and about 10% of cases are admitted to hospital to manage the pain caused by the disease. This is an outbreak that can be stopped if countries, communities, and individuals inform themselves, take the risk seriously, 
and take the steps needed to stop transmission and protect vulnerable groups. The best way to do that is to reduce the risk of exposure. That means making safe choices for yourself and others. For men who have sex with men, this includes, for the moment, reducing your number of sexual partners, reconsidering sex with new partners, and exchanging contact details with any new partners to enable follow-up if needed. The focus for all countries must be engaging and empowering communities of men who have sex with men to reduce the risk of infection and onward transmission to provide care for those infected and to safeguard human rights and dignity. The stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus and can fuel the outbreak. As we have seen with COVID-19, Misinformation and disinformation can spread rapidly online. So we call on all social media platforms, tech companies, and news organizations to work with us to prevent and counter harmful information. Although 98% of cases so far are among men who have sex with men, anyone exposed can get monkeypox which is why WHO recommends that countries take action to reduce the risk of transmission to other vulnerable groups, including children, pregnant women, and those who are immunosuppressed. In addition to transmission through sexual contact, monkeypox can be spread in households through close contact between people, such as hugging and kissing, and on contaminated towels or bedding. WHO recommends target vaccination for those exposed to someone with monkeypox and for those at high risk of exposure, including health workers, some lab workers, and those with multiple sexual partners. At this time, we don't recommend mass vaccination against monkeypox. One smallpox vaccine called MVA-BN has been approved in Canada, the European Union, and the U.S. for youth against monkeypox. Two other vaccines, LC-16 and SEM-2000, are also being considered for youth against monkeypox. However, we still lack data on the effectiveness of vaccines for monkeypox or how many doses might be needed. That's why we urge all countries that are using vaccines to collect and share critical data on their effectiveness. WHO is developing a research framework that countries can use to generate the data we need to better understand how effective these vaccines are in preventing both infection and disease, and how to use them most effectively. It's important to emphasize that vaccination will not give instant protection against infection or disease and can take several weeks. That means those vaccinated should continue to take measures to protect themselves by avoiding close contact, 
including sex, with others who have or are at risk of having monkeypox. There are also challenges with the availability of vaccines. There are about 16 million doses of MVABN globally. Most are in bulk form, meaning they will take several months to fill and finish into vials that are ready to use. Several countries with monkeypox cases have secured supplies of the MVABN vaccine and WHO is in contact with other countries to understand their supply needs. WHO urges countries with smallpox vaccines to share them with countries that don't. We must ensure equitable access to vaccines for all individuals and communities affected by monkeypox in all countries, in all regions. While vaccines will be an important tool, surveillance, diagnosis, and risk reduction remain central to preventing transmission and stopping this outbreak. Meanwhile, although the COVID-19 pandemic is far from over, we are now in a very different situation to where we were a year ago, and we have learned a number of important lessons. One of the most important is that the most effective way to save lives, protect health systems, and reopen societies and economies is to vaccinate the right groups first. Even in some countries that have reached 70% vaccination coverage, if significant numbers of health workers, older people, and other at-risk groups remain unvaccinated, deaths will continue, health systems will remain under pressure, and the global recovery will be at risk. This is not theoretical. This is real. COVID-19 deaths have been increasing for the last five weeks, and several countries are reporting increasing trends in hospitalizations following waves of transmission driven by Omicron subvariants. Last week, WHO launched an update to the global COVID-19 vaccination strategy, emphasizing the need to vaccinate the most at-risk groups, including 100% of health and care workers, 100% of older people, and 100% of those at highest risk. We continue to urge all countries to strive for the target of 70% vaccination coverage with a focus on target vaccination strategies that prioritize the most vulnerable, which is the most effective way to save lives. While vaccines have saved countless lives, they have not substantially reduced transmission. So it's vital for governments and the private sector to continue collaborating and investing in the development of new vaccines that prevent both infection and disease. We also need vaccines that can be delivered more easily, such as through nasal sprays or drops. Crucially, it's essential as new vaccines and other COVID-19 tools are developed, they are available equitably to all countries. In addition to vaccination, WHO urges all countries to assess and strengthen their readiness and response plans for future waves of transmission, 
including surveillance, testing, strong clinical management, and a well-equipped health workforce. Tariq, back to you. Uh, that was uh, the Director General of the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, delivering a briefing uh, just uh, several days ago from Geneva on the status of monkeypox transmissions and uh, also uh, COVID-19. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we're going to close out uh, with the music of Wayne Shorter from the album entitled Speak No Evil from 1966. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 